Why does Rice play Texas? We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. I was always a dreamer. I always saw a life beyond the life that I had as a child. It was like a big flashing light. This is what you're supposed to do. Everybody poo-pooed the idea. That work said it couldn't be done. You're in that zone, and it's that out-of-body experience where it just, everything clicks. Sometimes you have those dark moments. I was so depressed when I got fired. I was so mad. People don't need to be afraid to fail. And again, that, that's where you learn. You don't shouldn't be afraid of adversity. You know, that that is the thing that, that makes you strong. This is Jerry Levias. This is Jody Markell. This is Chi Yun. This is Dick Vitale, and you're listening to American Achievers. Welcome to American Achievers, the podcast that celebrates ambition, commitment to excellence, risk-taking, and tenacity on the road to success. I'm Keith Dunavant. Some of my guests are world-famous. Some are rather obscure. Our weekly lineup includes entrepreneurs, athletes, military heroes, civic leaders, artists, and media figures. What they all have in common is a sense of undeniable purpose and an intriguing story that reflects the power of the American dream. Timing is the X factor in any form of achievement. Henry Ford came along at just the right time to leverage the invention of the automobile, perfect mass production, and help birth the 20th century. But if he had been born in the Middle Ages, they might have burned him at the stake Consider the case of this week's guest. Retired Marine General Charles Bolton, former NASA administrator, former astronaut, grew up in South Carolina in a time when many of the gatekeepers to the U.S. Naval Academy could not see beyond the color of his skin. You could say that he was born too soon. After all, the segregationists were living on borrowed time and within a few years, the service academies would become models of integration. But you could also say that the world steps aside for a man who knows where he's going. Confronted with a roadblock on the way to his dream, Bolton didn't pout, and he didn't give up. He just worked the problem. His remarkable story is a reminder. Sometimes there's no substitute for chutzpah. You grew up in South Carolina, and your father was a high school football coach. What's the most important lesson you learned from him? Oh, geez. Uh, it's the one he had a saying that I remember all the time, and I try to use it when I talk to young people. It's not the size of the dog in the fight, but the size of the fight in the dog. And I, I, that is something I remember from, you know, when I was a little kid, before I even got to high school, he used to let me be the water boy. And so... Um, I was with the team growing up, and I heard him and his his witticisms and his coaching stuff. So I was privileged to have one of the greatest dads in the world and then uh, the greatest football coach that anybody could want to have. What are your enduring memories of segregation? Um, that, you know, it was the way I grew up. So everything that um, 
every memory I have of my childhood, which are which are all good, to be quite honest, even the bad ones um, are of segre- of the segregated South. I, you know, I can remember uh, everything I did was I lived in a black community. Uh, everything I did in Columbia was was black, um, with with the slight exception of uh, every once in a while, my my dad would uh, would sneak our football team over to across the river to play either Brooklyn Casey or down down in the country to play Laura Richland that were white high schools. But the coaches all seemed to be very good friends and and they they valued uh, giving their teams exposure to people that played a different style of football. And so, um, you know, as I grew up, it was not unusual for my dad to to put us on the bus and we'd go and play Laura Richland or Brooklyn Casey now and then. And um, I remember I have memories of coming, you know, I went to, until I was 12, I went to, to a Presbyterian church, Latson Presbyterian church that was in downtown Columbia. That's where my mom and dad went. And they, um, they allowed me to leave when I was 12 to go to the Episcopal church where I could become an altar boy and do some other things. But my Boy Scout troop at the church meant that once a week I had to go through a white neighborhood or white neighborhoods to get to you know, to get to my meeting because we generally walked and it was, I don't know, four or five miles or something like that. And then we, we would come back after the meeting was over. And I can remember several times having to run through the neighborhood to, to keep from either being assaulted or, or who knows what, if the white kids had caught us, but um, we never got caught and everything worked out okay. How did you avoid allowing that climate to affect the way you saw yourself? Oh, it didn't affect the way I saw myself at all. It, it, it did affect the way I saw them. Um, and my mom and dad had taught me from as long as I can remember that I could do anything I wanted to do and um, that I was no better than anybody else, but no worse. And, um, you know, never let anybody characterize me or, or define me and anything I wanted to do, go for it. Even if I didn't make it, uh, it was still okay. Um, so, um, you know, I felt good about, I always felt good about myself. I always had a feeling of sadness for them because for some reason they just, they just seemed to need, uh, you know, to have someone who they felt was inferior. And, and I could, I always had a difficult time understanding that since that's not what my mom and dad had taught me. Your mother and father were both educators. Both educators. How did that shape your development? My mom had uh, taught all their lives. My mother was a librarian, so she they they went to school together at Johnson C. Smith University in Charlotte, North Carolina, which at that time, well, it, it is still a historically black college. Uh, it was a Presbyterian university when they were there, and my my mother and father-in-law went went to Benedict College here in I mean, or in Columbia, in our hometown, which was a Baptist college, and then all four of them came back to teach. My mom and dad, uh, my mother, a librarian, as I mentioned, um, was the first black librarian to, to uh, integrate a formerly all-white school in Columbia after integration occurred. She went to Dreer High School. And um, my father, was, as I said, was my high school football coach. Um, when he finally retired from coaching football, he went over to, uh, to integrate AC Flora, where he became the athletic director. And then moved on to Keenan High School, where he was the athletic director at the time of his death. 
my mother, my grand, my my um, mother-in-law and father-in-law both eventually became principals. Um, uh, my mother-in-law, an elementary school principal in Columbia, and my father-in-law, a high school principal in a in a, a, a neighboring city, not too far outside of Columbia. They all four of them always said, nobody can ever take what you put in your brain. You know, you can. There are a lot of things that people can take from you. Uh, two things that no one else can take from you are your integrity and, and the things that you've learned and put in your brain. And so be incredibly curious, have an insatiable appetite for knowledge, and, um, and just, just try, to, try to know more than, than everybody else in the room, if, it, if it's at all possible. You played quarterback on a state championship team. What did playing sports teach you about competing? Well, I was uh, pretty competitive all my life. My mom and dad, early in life, I mean, really early in life, had uh, thrown me into the swimming pool. We, we were fortunate in Columbia in that um, during the days of segregation in the, in the um, trying to follow the philosophy of separate but equal, as they had done in schools, um, the, they had also built Drew Park, which was supposed to be the the mirror image of Maxi Gregg Park, which was the White Park down by the University of South Carolina. And so we had a 50 meter uh, swimming pool with high board and low board. And we were, we, we had the same kind of pool that the whites had at Maxi Gregg. And it, and um, I became a competitive swimmer. Geez, I can't remember how early, but I, all I remember is swimming most of my life. And, and I also remember that um, the good thing about swim, things like swimming and track was you never had to argue whether you were better than the white kids or not. All you needed to do was look at the times. And so each Sunday morning after the swim meets, we'd always compare our times with, with the times from Maxie Gregg. And as a general rule, we were better. So we never, while we would have loved to have had the opportunity to get in the pool and prove it, um, a stopwatch is a stopwatch is a stopwatch. So, so the times said, which was the better team. When did you first begin to think about attending the Naval Academy? When I was 12 years old, I was a seventh grader. And um, like kids today, I watched a lot of TV. And one of my favorite programs, because back then, um, you know, in the, in the late 50s, early 60s, um, military programs were still popular. We we saw Navy log that talked about life in the Navy, you know, life at sea. Uh, the silent service was about the submarine force. Uh, Men of Annapolis was a program about life at the Naval Academy. And there was a movie called The Long Gray Line about life at West Point. And, um, and I watched Men of Annapolis each week and I fell in love with the Naval Academy because of what I saw on the screen. The, just the beauty of the campus or the yard as, we, as I learned to call it, uh, the high collared uh, uniform that the midshipmen wore around and, and all the girls coming to the campus. It was just, it was like this dream school. And I decided right then and there that that's where I want to go. I didn't know anything at all about the Navy, the Marine Corps. I knew very little about the Army, although my dad and my uncles had all served in the Army in World War II. But they were like most people in, in their generation, in the greatest generation. They didn't talk a lot about World War II and what they did. So you were, the, you, it was all left to the imagination. But back then, uh, around Memorial Day, we had what was called Armed Forces Weekend. And my family generally went out to Fort Jackson, which was the Army's 
uh, largest, it was the largest basic training center in the world back then. And my dad would always take us out for armed forces weekend and uh, show us the barracks where he had trained when he was, when he was young. And, um, and we'd go to tank Hill and we'd watch the tank demonstrations. And we used to ride in a, in an amphibious vehicle called the duck where you, you went on Fort on Lake Moncrief and, they went and actually submerged the vehicle. So you went halfway across the lake underwater and it was just fascinating, but, but that was all I knew about the military, but I fell in love with the Naval Academy on television and decided that's where I wanted to go to school. It took a congressional appointment to go to Annapolis and you were born in a time and place where African-Americans did not win those appointments. How did you deal with that situation? Well, I was turned down by, by the entire South Carolina delegation. I, I actually remember, in, this was seventh grade, so I knew that, um, that when you became a senior or the latter part of your junior year, you, were, you needed to apply for an appointment, and appointments came from, from five, sor- four, five, five sources. Your two U.S. senators, so that was Strom Thurmond and Olin D. Johnston, your congressional representative, who for me would have been Albert Watson, the vice president of the United States who is eligible to appoint anybody from anywhere uh, and the president who has, who can appoint um, sons and now sons and daughters of Medal of Honor winners and active duty military. So the four people from whom I could possibly get an appointment were the vice president, the two U.S. senators and, the, and my congressional representative. And I, although I'm the eternal optimist, I didn't hold out a lot of hope that I would get any help from the South Carolina delegation. And that turned out to be true. I started applying when I was in ninth grade. And, and each year I'd get a letter back from their staff saying, hey, it's a little early, you know, wait until you're a senior and then come back. And I would always tell them, I just want them to know who I am so that my senior year, they, they'll recognize my name. And uh, my senior year, uh, sure enough, I sent my applications in and then devastation struck on the 22nd of November because that was the day that President John Kennedy was assassinated. And, and upon his assassination, I knew immediately that I was probably not gonna get into the Naval Academy because the South Carolina delegation had all told me that there was no way they were gonna appoint a black. They actually told you that? Yeah. You took your case to the President of the United States. Now that's chutzpah. My mom had always told me, if you want something, you got to ask for it. That was the way my mom was. She, she said, you know, nobody's going to come and offer you anything. If you want it, um, you've got to ask for it. You've got to have the courage to go out and ask. And then when you ask, you've got to be prepared. And so that was where the, the, the three-word advice that I give, every, I give anybody, anytime I talk to them and they ask me for advice, I say, you've got to study hard. You've got to work hard, which means practice. And you've got to be—you've got to be willing. You cannot be afraid of failure. You've got to be willing to fail. You've got to be willing to have people tell you no. Otherwise, forget it. And but that came from my mom. That that did not come from my football coach dad. That that came from my mom, the librarian. As best my mom and I can guess, she still she went to her death. She went to her death believing that Strom Thurmond actually uh, intervened on my behalf because she just. You know, she, they just kind of, I don't, I don't ask me why she believed that. But, um, but anyway, what happened was within weeks of my writing the letter to to, um, President Johnson, um, a Navy recruiter came and knocked on my door and asked for me and said he understood I was looking for an appointment to the Naval Academy. 
And I told him I was indeed. And, and within weeks of that, President Johnson sent a retired federal judge, Judge Bennett from Washington, D.C., sent him around the country looking for qualified young black and Hispanic men to, to go to the three service academies and um, the three major service academies because the Air Force Academy had opened, I think, three or four years prior. And so there were, there were two of us in our class. Wilson Rory was a classmate of mine whose father was a colonel in the, and an active duty colonel in the Army. So he didn't, he wasn't too worried, but, but we ended up, Wilson got a presidential appointment to West Point. Um, and I ended up with a congressional appointment from Congressman William Dawson in Chicago, Illinois to go. And we had a third classmate, a guy by the name of Caroy Ferguson that we, we Wilson and I really tried to get him to apply to Air Force Academy. He had, he had no interest whatsoever in the military and he went to Bowdoin College up in Maine. And uh, today as a PhD, uh, psychologist or psychiatrist, I, I, probably a psychologist, who's now back home in, in South Carolina. And yet, Strom Thurmond kept in touch with you. Every, every major milestone in my life, uh, from the time I got to the Naval Academy until he died, um, and, and I, I kick myself now because I didn't like Strom Thurmond, and so whenever I got a message from him, a note from him, I, I threw it away. And, and I wish today that I had kept it because I think it was heartfelt now in hindsight, but every, every major milestone in my life, I got a handwritten note from him until he couldn't write anymore. And then they were typed out and he signed them. But it, you know, it was like, congratulations on graduating from the Naval Academy. Congratulations on uh, you know, your commission in the Marine Corps. Congratulations on going to test pilot school. Congratulations on this, congratulations on that. Uh, never met him in person. Uh, but always, always got a, a very cordial and uh, generous note from him in congratulating me on what I'd done. How do you process that now? Oh, no, you know, knowing the history of Strom Thurmond now much more than I did back then. My mother never talked about him. And I think the reason she had so much belief that he had played a role was because she knew all the stories about Strom Thurmond. He had, at the time that I was growing up, he had a daughter he had multiple black children, but he had a daughter at South Carolina State University, a, a black, you know, historically black college. And he visited her with some regularity. He, he literally went to the campus and everybody knew who he was, but he paid, he paid visits regularly to his daughter to spend time with her. And, um, and I think my mom knew that. I didn't, I didn't learn it until after his death when people started talking about what Strom Thurmond had done. And um, my, my take on it is that he did what many politicians today do. They, they take a public stance and then they do stuff in the back room that is the way they really feel about it because um, there is some principle in the things that they do and they don't recognize the fact that their outward appearance is what really makes them and it's what, what makes other people want to be like them. So. So when you saw Strom Thurmond and what he may have done to help me, it, it was all for naught because everybody thought he was a racist and a segregationist and, and that they wanted to, people who wanted to be like Strom Thurmond, they, they did the same thing he did outwardly. So, you know, his one action, his one act toward me, if he did it, was good, but it didn't help overall. And I look at politicians today in the same light. Going to Annapolis was a, a turning point in your life. How did it change you? Oh, it, uh, it changed me significantly. I, I, I won't say it changed me. It, it definitely challenged me. In fact, it convinced me in the first few weeks that I didn't want to be there. You thought about quitting? 
oh shoot, if my dad had, uh, if, I, if I hadn't been afraid to go home and, and get whipped, uh, I would have I walked out after the first few days. I, you know, all through my plebe year, my freshman year, uh, from the very first weekend that we could call home, um, I would call crying to my, I mean, literally crying to my mom and dad that I, I just, I made a big mistake. I want out. I want to come home. And, uh, and my mother would, you know, she'd plead with me and everything. My dad would get on the phone and he'd say, he only said one thing. He said, hang in there one more week. And, and he never changed, he never changed his tune. He, um, he never, he never acted compassionate or, or anything. He just, as only a football coach can do in his advice, he said, hang in there one more week. And so every week for 52 weeks, I got off the phone and I went back into my room and cried and, um, and, but, but hung in there for one more week. You're listening to American Achievers. Stay tuned for more conversation. What did you learn from your parents that helped you rise to the challenge of the Naval Academy? I always go back to my mom and dad. You know, my, like I told you, the three things that they taught me was never be afraid of failure. Um, so give it, give it the best you can. Study really hard and, and really work hard. Practice at what you're doing. Always try to be the best. But, but knowing that, that everybody is not the best and you're not always going to be first, but just to compete is important. Uh, that came from my dad. My, I, I can remember, you know, my dad was a person who taught me how to cry because if our team made it to the, to the state championship and we didn't win, we felt like dog do. And, uh, and he would, his only counsel to us was go ahead and get cry and get it out and then remember what it feels like so that we don't do it again. And, um, you know, and I, and I, I mean, he cried like a baby when he found out I was going in the Marine Corps. He was the first one to just, just break down and cry. I, I had, I'd seen him weep before. I'd never seen him cry the way he did when I, when I announced to my family that I was going to go in the Marine Corps and I was going to become an infantry officer. And, you know, the, the Tet Offensive had occurred the year prior to, to my graduation and people talked about the life expectancy of a second lieutenant in terms of weeks to months. And that was not something my mom and dad wanted to hear that their son was going to go off and, and try to defy the law of averages over the survival of a Marine Corps second lieutenant. Um, he cried at my, at my wedding and um, because he was just overwhelmed with joy. He loved my, my, my bride. How did you meet your wife? Oh, we have known each other since we were three. Was it love at first sight? For me, it was not for her. I, you know, we went to kindergarten together. We were apart for for elementary school, and then back together for junior high and and senior high. And then we went away. She went to Spelman College in Atlanta, and I went to the Naval Academy. But I just there was something about her, even in kindergarten, that I can remember way back. But um, you know, our parents had been teachers together. My dad and her dad had played football at Booker T. Washington High School when they were when they were students there before going away to college. And they, um, my dad and, and her dad were football officials, high school and college football officials. So they, they worked together. And, and the mothers were, were both in a group called Jack and Jill. And um, it was a national black mothers organization uh, that, that enabled the black families to expose their children to things in society 
that they might not be able to see because of this because of segregation. So so Jack and Jill in Columbia, as an example, could get an evening at the Museum of Art in Columbia, where they after hours they would let us come in and and would give us a you know a museum but docent and show us around, or we could do things that were not normally available to blacks. Uh, because because our parents were in the Jack and Jill organization and had the guts to go ask. What's the most important thing you've learned from her? Patience. <laughs> she is incredibly patient. I mean, she she hung on my arm, swung on my arm all the way through my my early years in the Marine Corps because I was a feisty little guy. I, she always says I I suffer from the Napoleon complex. Um, I'm you know I'm about five six and and um, and and I I just and I was never one to take a lot of stuff. And she says, you know, you always want to you always want to go into combat. And I said, no, I don't. But so um, she was always very patient and said, just be calm and wait it out. Things will get better. When did you start to think about becoming an aviator? Very, 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 very late. So two things happened while I was in flight school. One was I made my choice of airplane, the A6 intruder, because of, believe it or not, it was a civilian who taught us meteorology, but he, he had a, he loved the A6 intruder and he had a number of friends in the Marine Corps, one of whom was the assignment officer in the second Marine aircraft wing back in Cherry Point, North Carolina. And, and as we went through our meteorology classes, I would keep going in and asking him to tell me a little bit more about the A6 and he did. And I said, you know, and again, it was, it's a really tough airplane to fly. It has an incredible mission that's very demanding and blah, 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 blah. And so he learned that I had an interest in flying A6s. And he said, you know, if you're serious, when you get to Cherry Point, here's a, a friend of mine I want you to look up. His name is John Church, and he is the assignment officer for 3rd Marine Aircraft Wing. So he's the person that's going to decide what airframe you're going to. And if you'll tell him, I'll send him a note, but if you'll tell him that that I recommended that you come in and talk to him. He'll do what he can to get you in A6s. And sure enough, when I got my wings and I, I got back to Cherry Point, um, I went in and I asked for Captain Church. And when I walked in, he said, you're the idiot that wants to fly A6s? And I said, yes, I am, sir. And he said, well, anybody that's that stupid, I'm going to let you do it. Because yeah, he, he was an F4 guy. And he thought the only good pilot was a fighter pilot. So he assigned me to the A6 training squadron, VMFAT-202, and, and I went through and, and became a, a certified A6 pilot and just fell in love with the airplane. We, we actually were, were based in, Thai, in Thailand, in a, the middle of the Royal, Royal Thai training base in the Thai jungle, a place called Nam Pong, Thailand. Uh, we call, we have, the Marine Corps affectionately called it the Rose Garden, but, um, and it, it had a lot to do with the song that had become the theme of Marine Corps recruiting. We never promised you a rose garden. And, um, but so the squadron left about two weeks prior to my actually arriving in, in Iwakuni, Japan from Cherry Point, North Carolina. And I was told to take my foot locker and put it in the, in, in the hangar for storage, but get out uh, three or four flight suits, enough for a month flight suits, underwear, and uh, socks, and be ready to leave the next day because I was going south. And, and I did. I, you know, packed my, my backpack and went, went to Thailand with a month's worth of stuff. And a year later came out 
Um, the very first day I flew a, a what we called an orientation flight, um, we flew over into South Vietnam and flew up along the, the DMZ so that I, I could get oriented and flew over Khe Sanh, uh, where the site of the big battle in South Vietnam in the early days of the Vietnam War. Uh, and then just, just it was just an orientation flight. And I, um, I came back, we landed, and the, just the sense of somberness on the flight line was unbelievable. And we got out and, and we asked some of the plane captains and others what had happened, and they told us we had lost it. We had just lost an airplane. And, and so we started asking questions. And it turned out we had had an airplane on a bombing mission over Quezon uh, that had been shot down, which was unbelievable because this late in the war, there just wasn't supposed to be any heavy anti-aircraft artillery that far south. And yet we had lost, a, we had just lost an airplane in an area that I had just flown over. Um, and we, so, you know, that was my introduction to the squadron. Um, I kind of mourned their loss, but then put it out of my mind and because, you know, it wasn't going to happen to me. It, that's just kind of the, I think the attitude that you learn to live by, it, that's very unfortunate, but it's not going to happen to me. If you find that you can deal with fear, that you can keep it from dominating what you do, you know, like my mom and dad said, don't be afraid of failure. If you can accept the fact that every once in a while you're going to, you're just not going to be good. You're not going to make it. It's not going to be your day. You're not going to, you are not going to be the winner. Um, but there will be another day. That's the, that's the extra part that you need to always keep in mind. You, you may not make it today, but there will, there will be another day. That's a, that's a little bit different than believing that, okay, I, I might die tonight and, and there won't be another day. I, I don't think I, um, even the night that I thought, that might that might be the last flight we flew. I kept flying because I figured, okay, if there's a way to get out of this, we're going to figure it out. What's the most important value you learned from the Marine Corps? I would say, you know, we have something we call core values, honor, courage, and commitment. And the foremost core value is honor or integrity. So I try to live my life um, uh, as a person of honor, a uh, person of integrity that, um, you know, I I can't say that I never lie, but, but I, I make a conscious effort to always be truthful and candid with people. Um, and perhaps the most important uh, rule that I try to follow is, I, I, and I tell people all the time, is take care of your people. So uh, of everything else that I've done that I think has contributed to my success, it, again, it comes from my dinner table, from my mom and dad, and, and that is take care of your people and, and they'll take care of you. Was it tough for you to adjust to stateside life after Vietnam? Nah, for me, not at all. I, I came back from Vietnam to Los Angeles, California to recruit, uh, something I had never done. I had never been west of the Mississippi. So, so I was in a totally different, you know, my wife and I, with a, with a two-year-old son, we were in a totally different environment than we had ever experienced before, uh, going from Columbia, South Carolina to Los Angeles, California. And uh, we bought our first home out there, um, you know, recruiting. I had a hundred plus college campuses all over Los Angeles County for which I had the responsibility of visiting um, 
at least twice a year and frequently four times a year to try to recruit young men and women to be officers in the Marine Corps. And um, and my second year, they added on responsibility for enlisted recruiting. So I had, um, I want to say I had 17 uh, recruiting substations in LA County with um, about 20 some odd recruiters. So uh, I not only had responsibility for accessing uh, young men and women to be officers in the Marine Corps, but also to oversee the work of the enlisted recruiters who were out to get young men and women to be enlisted Marines. So I didn't, I didn't really have time to reflect on, on the, the Vietnam experience. I had this hunkering, hankering, or whatever you want to call it, to go to test pilot school, to become a test pilot. And that had, that had come about before I even got my wings. So I started applying to test pilot school the very first year I was I was a, a, a squadron pilot. What was it about becoming a test pilot that fired you up? I just wanted to, I wanted, I wanted the challenge of flying test flights and, and you know, testing airplanes. And um, I just thought it was demanding. And that was something I thought I would, I would enjoy doing. What is it about your internal makeup that makes you want to try hard things? Again, I guess I go back to my mom and dad and they, they always said, you know, if it's anything worth having is worth fighting for. And, um, and anything that's worth having is you're going to have to work real hard to get it. And so um, I never had any qualms about, about trying hard things. I, I, don't, I don't think I purposely selected things that were going to be difficult. It's just I, I selected things that I thought I would enjoy and to which I could contribute. And then I went about going, you know, doing whatever it took to be able to do that. So I don't, I don't think I picked hard things. I picked things that I thought would be enjoyable and challenging, and, and some of them turned out to be a little bit harder than I thought. Going, going through test pilot school actually was a little bit harder than I thought academically, but I, but I did it, and I did well. I wasn't, no, no stretch of the imagination was I the class honor man, but I, did, but I did pretty well, and I became a pretty good test pilot. And it was while I was a test pilot, uh, it, it, no thoughts about going to space. In fact, my only thoughts about the space program was no. What do you remember about the shared worldwide cultural experience of Apollo 11? Oh, I, I just remember sitting, watching, you know, the grainy pictures um, of this person coming down the ladder, um, uh, you know, from one of the external cameras on the, on the space, on the, the lander. And um, just getting goosebumps and also getting over the excitement and the fear of losing the crew as they descended to the lunar surface when they when Neil Armstrong was kind of traversing over the surface, trying to find a safe place to land. He you know, he didn't land where he was supposed to land because of the, the because of all the boulders and everything. And so, yeah, he started manually flying across the surface of the moon to find a safe place. And and they were. Buzz Aldrin was counting down the seconds until until the engine quit, and uh, Charlie Duke, who who is another a fellow South Carolinian, but Charlie Duke was the capsule communicator uh, at the time, and I remember I, I didn't I don't remember it from that night, but I but I remember it from seeing videos of of the mission control center when uh, Charlie Duke after Neil Armstrong you know says the eagle has landed, Charlie Duke went. Whew, you got a whole bunch of folk down here who were turning blue, holding their breath, and we can now breathe. And but but that I remember that 
although I didn't realize how dire the situation was, I knew it was not good for him to be, uh, you know, maneuvering across the lunar surface looking for a place to land. What did that achievement say about the country? You know, you, you got to remember what was happening in the country at the time. I mean, I'm, I'm going through flight school. Um, this is uh, 1969. And um, we are fighting and killing each other on the streets of, of major cities all across the country. And we're fighting for civil rights in spite of the fact that, you know, the Civil Rights Act had been passed, the Voting Rights Act had been passed, but it was as if none of that had even taken place. And the, just the thought that we, we had just put humans on the surface of another heavenly body while we were doing all this other stuff, while we were fighting to hold the, the Republic together, um, we had group, a group of us had managed to come together over a period of time and put somebody somewhere else other than this planet. To me, even then, at that moment, that was, that was stupefying that, that we as human beings could do that, that we could find the, you know, the resilience, the, the persistence, the courage to do all that stuff with everything else, every other distraction going on. Thanks to Lane McGibney and all the good folks at Boutwell Studios for all the TLC required to bring this podcast to life. And audio engineers Joe Beeman and Jonathan W. Hickman. Remember, everyone has a special talent. You just need to identify it, cultivate it, and be willing to pay the price. You too can become an American achiever. <laughs>